Okay, uh, hello everyone and welcome back to a new exciting two-part member series by Professor Tzvi Langerman on the philosophical writings of the Yemenite Chachamim. Uh, speaking from my own experience, I do not know a lot about the Yemenite world and their thoughts, so I'm very excited for the series and to be introduced to Chachamim, such as Rav Netanel Ben Yishayar, Rav David Adani, and Rav Zechariah Harufeh. Uh, Sam News, our existing curriculum, ends in uh, June, and we will be launching our new curriculum then. Um, about our speaker, yeah, Professor Tzvi Langerman has studied and worked at Boston University, Harvard, the Institute of Microfilmed Hebrew Manuscripts, and Bar Ilan University at the Arabic Department. He has studied the literature of Yemenite Jewry for decades and was a loyal participant in the twice-weekly shirim of the late Rav Yosef Kafach for 20 years. Uh, his most recent book, In and Around Maimonides, was published by Gorgias Press in 2021. Uh, with that said, our classes are recorded and will be available after on our website. Uh, please raise your hand if you have uh, any questions, and please, God, there will be time for questions at the end as well. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, Professor, it is an honor and privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Okay, well, <clears throat> thank you, and it's an honor and privilege to be here. Uh, I gave some thought as to how I could give a, an hour talk uh, presenting the uh, philosophy as it was uh, practiced and developed by the Jews of Yemen. It could easily be a sort of survey with a lot of names of people and books and, and philosophical schools, which would leave you with a lot of information, but not much of a sense of what it was all about, what the fuss was all about, why people were interested in this. So I decided instead to sort of take a chance and take a, a deep plunge in this first talk. And the second talk will uh, touch some of the same points from a different angle, give you a chance to digest the first talk and Maybe uh, you know, ask some some questions that may have that may have uh, come up as you hear my presentation. So what I will do is, first of all, uh, I will not survey all the thinkers, the names that were just mentioned. I'll be speaking about uh, uh, the work of one uh, person, one of the most prolific of the <coughs> Yemenite, Yemenite authors, Khotir ben Shlomo. <clears throat> Mansour bin Suleiman, as it was called in, in, in Arabic. And after presenting him uh, briefly, I will, as I said, take a deep plunge and look at one uh, particular issue that he returned to, or they, they, they turned to twice in his life. Uh, and this will sort of give us a, a, an example as to you know, what, what, what issues trouble these thinkers and how they handled them. So Chodem uh, and Shlomo, like uh, is called Odamari, there's been some controversy as to whether that means that he was actually from the town of Damar in Yemen, uh, which produced a, a number of scholars, or whether that didn't necessarily mean that he was from Damari, but just that he had spent some time there. Uh, a discussion that is uh, academic and pretty much irrelevant to what I'll be talking about now. Uh, he flourished around the beginning of the 15th century, which is uh, uh, when uh, uh, sort of a lot of the interest in philosophy and the writing peaked. And he left us uh, uh, 
uh, quite a number of works. He left us a philosophical midrash called Siraj Lukul, the lamp uh, of the intellects, uh, from which I made uh, many selections in my anthology of Yemenite uh, philosophical midrash. He uh, wrote a, an extensive commentary on Maimonides' 13 foundations or pillars, uh, principles of belief. Uh, and he also wrote a, uh, a, 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 a two sets of questions and answers. Uh, and I will be taking my, my, the most, my main talk, my, most, most of this talk from the questions and answers because I think that, that, that these give us uh, the best indication as to what the issues were that were troubling Yemenite Jews and, and how they attempted to deal with them. But before I do that, I would, I, I would like first like to uh, read to you this passage uh, from his uh, philosophical midrash, Siraj Lukul, which sort of sums up his attitude on life, his attitude on, on how people should grow and not, be, uh, not get stuck in the same intellectual rut and be willing to develop. Uh, so it's here, it's on your screen. It, uh, it comes from, it's, it's found in two manuscripts. Uh, in, the, in the Q&A, if someone wants to hear about the manuscripts, I can talk about them. Uh, and he says, you who inquire should know, it is not proper for a person of intelligence and understanding to decide on the basis of the first notion that arises in his mind. He should rather consider all of the opinions, even if he ultimately accepts only one correct teaching from among, among many. He will be satisfied with that one rather than many doubt-ridding teachings. In other words, instead of being someone who knows a lot and can give you a lot of answers and a lot of theories, but you're not sure about any of them, you know, make a, go make a, a, a deep investigation and settle on one that you can be sure is, is, is the most correct. As the sage said, better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. And this is a typical, you know, Yemenite philosophical interpretation. This is not talking about the wealth uh, that the rich, that the wealthy people earn honestly, but the small amount of knowledge that a person can uh, acquire and be absolutely satisfied that it's, that it's certain because they've looked at it from every angle. They have blessed memory said, the righteous are renewed, that is, they develop and progress. The wicked are not renewed. This comes from Prekid Rebeliezer, uh, which is to be interpreted. The righteous develop notions that are new and correct, which are not the same as the previous notions. So people should be always changing. And this is an actually interesting point. I'm among the people who, when uh, studying Maimonides, um, and, and one comes across uh, contradictions between what he says in his different writings, that <clears throat> most often the best explanation is that he changed his mind. People who think change their minds. People who you know make, a, make up their mind on something when they're 18 or 20 and, and, and stick with it, that, that's not the path that, 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 that he's recommending. In order to decide in favor of those notions that they've arrived at in the course of their studies, 
unless they find them to be completely correct. And then here again, another philosophical uh, uh, homily on biblical verse. So goes the trope, and he quotes from the uh, the, the passage from actually uh, uh, the parsha we're reading in well in, in England maybe next week in Israel I think in two weeks. Uh, which is, you know, uh, ostensibly a, a blessing and an economic blessing that that the that the harvests will be so great that you can't finish last year's produce and you have to clear out the silo to put in the new the new the new harvest. But for him, it's it's a, again to be interpreted in terms of a person's intellectual growth that. When you arrive at new and better and more solid ideas, then take out the old ideas and put in the new ones. And this way, the people who want their information to be correct and their conclusions will act. They will not be hostile towards those who are learned. They will rather act humbly towards them and seek them out. Even if they were to absorb only one idea from each learned individual of his era. As learned said, I've been made wise from all of my teachers. Now, whether Hote was able to live up fully to this uh, very you know, flowery and idealistic uh, picture, I don't know. I, can't, I don't want to suspect that he wasn't. But even if, even if you know, uh, either way, it's, it's just the, the idea of having as, as an ideal of, of renewing knowledge and not being uh, stuck in the same opinion is, I, I think, uh, noteworthy at his time. He does carry on <coughs> a debate, which I, which he actually wrote a long essay on, which I published in in the Proceedings of the American Academy of Jewish Research. Anyone wants, I can uh, send them a, a PDF. Uh, a, a debate with with someone who who uh, believes that one should not budge from. From, from traditional ideas, but in any event, it's 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 also interesting because uh, in connection with the text that I've chosen uh, uh, to talk about today, he does actually have to change his his uh, uh, interpretation, and for a much more serious reason, uh, we'll see that he he's trying he, his first in his first uh, response, he's taking a guess. And he has more solid information in the second response. We'll, we'll fill out the details in a few minutes. These, uh, so I'm, I'm going to turn now to his questions and answers. Now, the, the production of, of a literary work, of a, of a, of a philosophical text, uh, which has you know, a question and then a long answer, a question and an answer, and is, it's a matter of some uh, discussion whether this is an artificial uh, device uh, for that the author is posing questions to himself and, and then writing answers the way the hub deal politicians will plant questions among the uh, reporters at a news conference because they are, have a prepared response which they'd like to read. Uh, but or whether these are actual questions that came up to the to, to, to the scholar and and they reflect the things that were, that were uh, on the on the minds of, of, of their their contemporaries, I, I I tend to think that it's that it's a mixture of both. Now these 
questions and answers uh, uh, went through several editions under Coulter himself. He first published a set of 70 questions and answers and later on expanded it to 100. Uh, the second set of 100 questions and answers along as well as his, his commentary, Maimonides 13 uh, Principles of Belief were both edited, translated, given an extensive introduction and notes by David Blumenthal and I posted somewhere in a, in a shared Google Drive uh, some pages from from uh, the uh, me, from Blumenthal's uh, introduction uh, to the uh, questions and answers. Now the questions concern a, a difficult, troubling passage in Maimonides' own presentation of these thirteen principles. The thirteen principles of the faith uh, are possible Maimonides' most famous creation or the one that's reached the widest audience, but it's, it's reached it in not in its original form. It's reached it in forms that are put in the prayer book and the Siddur uh, as the animamin, the, the, the 13 of them that, that some, some people say daily are in the, uh, in the uh, piyut and the litany that, that's sung in many congregations on Friday evenings, uh, but Maimonides' own presentation is a much more reasoned and lengthy uh, presentation, which he gives in his commentary on the Mishnah. The commentary on the Mishnah, it's important to point out, was Maimonides' earliest composition, something written uh, in his 20s when he was still in the Maghreb in the West, mostly in Morocco, maybe in Spain as well, under the Almohad uh, persecution, teaching the Mishnah uh, surreptitiously and in secret. And it's the work of his youth. Uh, and he, in fact, he in, in, went back and changed many ideas. Uh, but in, in this uh, set, and so towards, so. The commentary of the Mishnah is a running commentary. That is to say, it's, it follows all the six uh, volumes of the Mishnah, Mishnah by Mishnah, explaining difficult words, explaining uh, how the Lacha stands vis-a-vis -vis the text of the Mishnah and things of that sort. But he also includes several uh, self-standing essays, the most important of which is the lengthy introduction to Pirkei Avot, which is known as Shmona Prakim, the eight chapters, and is his main work on ethics, and a lengthy introductory essay to the chapter in, the, in, in Sanhedrin, uh, which begins, Kol Yisrael Yeshlem Chelek Lolam Aba, Chelek, the chapter that talks about the uh, afterlife, the reward and punishment that, are, that, that, that people receive, uh, and it's uh, obviously a theologically rich chapter, full with many agadot and the Rambam Maimonides had a great concern that these agadot not be taken too literally. And so we wrote a long introduction uh, about uh, on this chapter. And, and since the chapter deals with beliefs and tells us at the very beginning that someone who denies the resurrection uh, has no share in the world to come, Maimonides decided that he could, he ought to formulate what he thinks are the 13 
principles of belief that every Jew should assimilate, not necessarily recite as a creed or as a catechism, but, uh, but uh, ponder deeply and convince yourself that they are true. And the central one of these for, I think has a lot to do with the fact that he, he was writing them at a time of great uh, conversion pressure from the side of the, uh, the Muslim authorities has to do with the prophecy of Moses, which Maimonides says is sui generis, is really completely of a different uh, uh, species than the, the prophecy of other prophets, uh, which leads to the special uh, status of the Torah. And, he has, and, and, and his exposition of the seventh principle, which is a special status of, of the prophecy of Moses, is, is, rather, is the longest. It takes up uh, three or four paragraphs. But Maimonides actually tells us that it's, it's a, an extremely abbreviated statement of what he should say, because in order to uh, fully understand the nature of prophecy and why the prophecy of Moses is so different, one needs to have a full, a, a, a thorough grounding in the knowledge of the soul, the, the, fa the faculties of the soul, according to medieval psychology, the imagination, the radicination, memory, as well as the forms, but the forms and figures that are seen by uh, the prophets, especially Yechezkel, Ezekiel, and his, cha and his chariots. And this, he says, and I have here on the screen, you see it, it's in Arabic, and this brings us to shior koma and its meaning. Now, what is shior koma? Well, we know now shior koma is a mystical treatise uh, of, of uh, uh, astounding uh, strangeness, something that one would not associate with Maimonides. And in fact, later on in life, Maimonides was asked about this. He said, I now totally rejects your coma and it has nothing to do with it. And it's totally alien to my philosophy. And apparently when he was a younger man, he thought differently. Shior coma, as the net title seems to hint, gives you a measurement of the body of the Shrina, the body of the divine body, uh, telling you that it has so many hundred cubits above the waist and so many cubits below the waist. And uh, so, now, the, the problem is that uh, <clears throat> when the, 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 the Yemenites first they got, this, they got the commentary of the Mishnah and the question first came out, they had never seen the book Shiokoma and they had no idea what, what this phrase meant. As a matter of fact, as we'll see, they weren't even sure if it was, if, if it was a Hebrew name a Hebrew book, a Hebrew book title, or an Arabic phrase, because you see here, if you can, see, if you you see the the phrase as I've written, when you write Judeo-Arabic, you're writing Arabic and Hebrew letters, and one of the advantages of this is that you can move freely between, you know, your own discourse in Arabic and your citations from the Tanakh or from the Talmud in Hebrew and Aramaic. So reading this as a straight book, uh, straight is, is nothing but Arabic. It would it it, it makes sense. One could say, We'll see that in a minute. So they had no idea what it meant. But Chotir, 
in his first response, uh, uh, tries to tease it out, doesn't, he, he tries to tease it out and, uh, and fits it into a sort of a, a philosophical model, a cosmological model, uh, which was very popular among the, the Yemenite philosophers and was something that they, uh, in fact, uh, uh, returned to again and again. One of the points I want to make in this talk is that the stock of philosophical themes or philosophical models or schemes, which they found to be hinted at in, in biblical or rabbinic texts, was not that great. And they would come back, and, and a variety of different texts, prophetic texts, rabbinic texts, uh, would some or other end up being interpreted as sitting at the same scheme. So he interprets it in this way. And since Maimonides is talking about prophecy, and since this scheme that he has in mind uh, has to do with prophecy, because it has to do basically with, with the chain of being from the divine through the angelic and spiritual spheres down to the humans and the critical juncture, if a person is worthy of it, which results in prophecy, so he's not that far off base. Uh, but then somehow the book, the actual book, Shiokoma, with its fantastic measurements of the divine body came to his intention and he returned to the question and gave it, interpreted it differently, a different technique of interpretation, a lot of different details, but ultimately going back to the same model. So this shows us how he, he did, basically did in fact, have to change his, 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 his interpretation of this passage because he, he, he got a missing, the missing piece of the puzzle uh, somehow came to his attention. Now, uh, David Blumenthal, uh, who, I said, who, who edited these, and I, I think he did overall an excellent job, but he never mentions the fact that, 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 in, that in the second uh, uh, response, uh, Hoter knows of the actual, the real Hebrew text that's called Shior Koma, whereas in the first he doesn't. And so in, in his presentation, this, it seems totally artificial to address the same problem twice and split the answer up. Uh, but if we look at it, as I, as I presented it here, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, it's the only query that he, that he comes to that he, that, 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 that he has to provide two answers to, which is one of the reasons I, I, I brought it up. It's the only thing that he actually had to come back to again, which indicates that it was a problem on the agenda of the Yemenites. So uh, now I would, I would like to just uh, sort of uh, summarize his different responses to, to, the, to, to, to the issue at hand uh, I, I won't go into, I won't read the whole things that would take too long, and, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll summarize it. And some of the details, I'm sure some details will be uh, you know, far removed from, unless you're, you've studied medieval astronomy or things, will, will, will be uh, you know, far removed from anything you may have ever counted. But I think even without getting too bogged down in the, in the technical details of interpretation, we can come away with a feeling for how we approach the subject. So the first thing to mention in his first response 
is that he mentions that this is a difficult problem that's troubled others. People in the Yemen studied Maimonides' commentary in the Mishnah. Uh, at this, this point cannot be really, really should be emphasized because of all Maimonides' writings, the one that had the least impact uh, in the world of rabbinic scholarship, uh, and I'm talking mainly about European rabbinic scholarship, was the commentary to the Mishnah because it was in Arabic. It was available only in several partial, uh, incomplete and imperfect uh, translations. And I heard from one of the greatest uh, scholars of the past generation, Professor Herbert Davison, who just passed away about a year ago, uh, with regard to the edition and translation of uh, my teacher, Laura Yusuf of Kafech, who, who published the entire commentary edition, translation, and notes, that he said that, that one could make an entire career on that work, the work of Rav Kafech and making his edition available. So, uh, but in, in the Yemen, it was studied. I, I knew one of the one of the people from the older generation of, of the Yemenis who would, who continued up until the into the 1990s uh, to uh, uh, give to read the in in his in his synagogue to teach Maimonides commentary on the Mishnah in Arabic, uh, reading in Arabic, and the Shia was in Arabic. So people were troubled by this because they what is what is this Shia Koman? What does it do with it? And as I said, he mentioned someone who saw it as a Arabic expression, which in which case it will be read as Shu'or Kaumihi, literally an assessment of his people. And so what Maimonides is saying is simply that Moses, uh, as a prophet, uh, had a good sense of you know, the public, uh, what public opinion was, where the people were at in their in their minds, in their senses, in their uh, uh, behavior and this and this was what enabled him to make the prophecies that he made about Israel uh, sinning, suffering and, and repenting. Then Cholter goes into his own uh, uh, assessment, which as I say here fits the context of Maimonides text, though it misses the reference to a distinct mystical treatise. Since Maimonides says that this will lead to Shior uh, Koman, uh, he says word Gendarij in Arabic, from daraja, like darga in Hebrew, something that's like a, like a step function to go. In Texas, to refer to what we're going to call the chain of being, uh, uh, culminating in the human-like figure seated in the throne of Ezekiel's chariot, which is the ultimate in the human perception of the deity. Because the, the theme that he will go to, the answer, the bottom line that he will come to again and again in these different interpretations is that when Maimonides says this leads to Shior Koma, this leads to uh, the uh, determining what is the ultimate uh, in human attainment, a question that interpreted the trouble by Maimonides and the interpreters. There is, a, there is a limit to human knowledge. And wh wh what is this limit? Uh, the most of the response is devoted to the, the schematic description of the cosmos, filling in some details. Uh, and won't go into this this will take us too far uh, 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 out of uh, line. But basically, the philosophical picture, which these uh, scheme, which these Yemenites adopted, um, which I will come, which I will speak about with the help of some diagrams in my second talk, <clears throat> uh, was is has its roots in late classical 
uh, Greek philosophy and uh, developed by some of the the Muslim uh, theologians with whom the Yemenis were were in contact, uh, which basically talks about a a chain of being, an emanation or an effusion from the divine. The great question, the great question of Maseb Rashid, the great question uh, is if how does one get from absolute nothing uh, to something? How does one get from the thing that the totally immaterial spiritual to the spiritual, to the physical uh, and mundane? And not that they had a fully satisfying answer, but basically they said that it goes through a series of stages. Uh, the first stages coming from the divine are, are not yet material, they're not something that you can uh, uh, feel, but they are they are, are ontologically inferior to the deity because they are cause. God has no cause. There's nothing that causes God. God is not dependent on anything for his existence, but the angels or other spiritual beings that may inhabit the, uh, the supernal realm uh, are caused. They have something which bring them, brought them about and for whose existence, uh, for whom they depended for their existence. And as one moves down, uh, these, these things become uh, less, uh, less uh, immaterial, less uh, sublime, and, 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 and more dense until eventually they're so dense that they're actually material uh, and become the, 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 our material world. And then things take, uh, go back, uh, uh, there's a return path where the material takes on forms that have life and vitality and movement through the plants and animals and up to the human who has uh, uh, intellect, which allows him to reach up again into the higher realms, but only to a certain limit. So that's basically the scheme. And that's the scheme here that, 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 that in order to understand uh, Moses' prophecy and what it means to say that Moses was a prophet unlike any other prophet, and that he attained something that no other prophet had attained or will attain, one has to understand this entire, this, this this cosmological scheme. So this is how we, what he sees in Shior Komat, it has nothing to do with the actual book, but it fits the context of Maimonides' exposition. But again, since we are, since he is engaging in uh, some sort of, you know, textual study, you you can't totally ignore the uh, Hebrew phrase, which he's asked to explain Shior Komat, he has to give some sort of way of connecting this whole philosophical, cosmological exposition to the phrases. So he finds it, interestingly enough, in the Torah, where the Torah says, God says, I will lead you in Vayikra Leviticus chapter 26. And the, the Talmud reads this text figuratively and says, the two komot of Adam. Koma meaning, as you know, in, in modern Hebrew, koma is the floor of a building, a four-floor, 
a building that's four stories as Arba Pomot. So, uh, and, the, and the, the, there's a rabbinic tradition that Koma of Adam was uh, such and such cubits. Uh, but he interprets these Komot not as uh, spatial measurements in, in meters or yards, but as uh, stages or, 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 or levels of, of intellectual perfection or of spiritual attainment. And in the roughest scheme of that cosmology that I, that I uh, outlined earlier, there can, one can find four such stages uh, which give them names are uh, the human, human rational faculty, the active intellect, which is sort of the angel that is in charge of our world, and then the universal soul and universal intellect, which are these hypostases, or these, these stages in the emanation from the divine. So Shior Koma, and the fact that, that as the Talmud says, uh, ad, uh, there, Adam had Adam, the, 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 the biblical Adam, the first human, had two come out. Uh, basically, tells us that the ultimate in human perfection is to uh, completely traverse the first two, two stages, to, to bring the human rational faculty to its maximum perfection, and then link up with the active intellect. So He's come up with some way of connecting this phrase your comma to uh, uh, the, the actual Hebrew words. Now, in the second uh, uh, treat, uh, response, he's certainly aware of a treatise called your comma. I'm not sure he actually saw it as an independent text. He may have seen it in uh, some other Hebrew text connected to this early a group of mystics called the Iyun Circle, whose writings are cited by Zechariah ben Shlomo in his uh, Midrash Chefetz. And there's some thoughts in Zechariah ben Shlomo is called of the Mari. That's Zechariah Harofei. And, and Chote ben Shlomo is of the Mari. And they live around the same time. People have speculated that they may actually have been brothers with both, but that's again, cause speculation which uh, doesn't really matter all that much for, for uh, uh, the issues that we're discussing. So here he says that the, the Shior Koma is about the holy names, uh, 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 holy and divine names. And uh, then he, he goes to the, uh, uh, he cites the, the measurements, as I said, that are in this treatise that, it's, it's, it sounds almost blasphemous to, to, just to repeat it, that the Shashchina are 200 cubits from the waist up and 200 from the waist down. But interestingly enough, he tells us that these numbers have no significance. They are only there to appall the reader. That is to say, there are these fantastic numbers. And if you know, if some of you learned about these Hechalo treatises, which have many things with these huge numbers, they're there just to, to stun people, just like, you know, today people tell about, like about millions and billions and trillions of years or trillions of dollars just to sort of shock us. So they're just, they're meant, it's meant for like the, the, the stun value uh, of the, uh, of the Shina, but the numbers themselves at this have, have no, have no, num have no, no, 
not true measurement. They derive from certain alphanumerical uh, calculations, uh, which he which he goes through, and they're complex, and I'm not sure that anyone figures them out completely. But but eventually, after going through these 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 computations, he returns again to this same cosmological scheme of the the uh, the, uh, the 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 structure of the universe. So many of the questions and answers of, 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 of in Volta's collections, coming from all sorts of angles, all sorts of biblical passages, all sorts of Pagetic passages, they are all eventually made to fit this cosmological model, which the Yemeni thought was so fundamental, so basic to uh, to the religious philosophy. In order to have the proper understanding of the deity and the proper understanding of the human and the proper understanding of the human's relation to the deity and what the human uh, can strive for and must strive for, one has to have a picture, of, a, a good understanding of how the whole scheme uh, fits together. And that's why they keep coming back to it again and again. And as I said in, in, in the second talk, on Thursday, I will come back to this with, with some diagrams that, that they have to illustrate this. So here he harkens back to it and brings in again uh, another another structure, which is which is uh, uh, the Yemeni scholars come back to again and again our revolt, uh, which the Talmud tells us is the sort of the locus of of, of, of human souls, the place where maybe the souls come from and where they they return to, and this is basically in the medieval conception the the, the, the all-encompassing sphere, the medieval conception is that the, the cosmos is limited. It's, there's one, it's one sphere with the fixed stars on the outermost orb, the planets, and then the earth in the middle. And everything is powered by the outermost sphere, which has the daily motion of 24 hours. So that's the engine. And that's where the divine... Uh, uh, how, how God basically powers, energizes the 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 universe, and again, this is something that that, that he he gets he, he slips into this interpretation because it's so important for his worldview. Though it's not, there's nothing about it in in the Shiokoma. And as I hinted in in, in Midrash Hafetz of Zechariah and Shlomo, we find a similar exposition. The Yemenites like going back to these schemes, no matter what they're interpreting, because they're what's central to their to their uh, understanding of what life is all about and what 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 is the knowledge that a person needs to uh, live their life properly as as a God worshiping and God fearing individual. Then he arrives at a, a, another way of 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 getting at these numbers. Uh, Using the complex system of, of 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 circles and circles upon circles and medieval astronomy, I, it happens to be my original specialty, my doctorate, so I know a little bit about it. But I don't know if I want to go into it here. But but if each circle is four quadrants and and, and there are fifty four circles, then we get two hundred and sixteen. And th this is the sort of the the material world. And then there's a hidden a thing for the for the 
soul, the divine, the divine power, which he calls that's the phrase coming from the book of Hebrew uh, of Sior Koma. Without, without going again into the details, the critical point, critical point to take away is again, the ingenuity of Choter and his compatriots in fitting just about any revered text into the cosmological scheme. So as a, a, the conclusion, uh, Choter struggled twice to extract the deep meaning which must be present in Shua Koma, a phrase which, so the context dictates, signifies for Maimonides the highest reaches of human or even prophetic perception. The first attempt relied on some guesswork, as Chotir was unfamiliar with Shua Koma, the, the book. He did not know that it was the name of a book. He wasn't even sure if the Hebrew letters should be read as Hebrew or Arabic. He returned to the problem once more, after having seen at least part of the, the real book known as Shior Koma. Though the hermeneutic techniques he deployed different in his two attempts, the deep, the deep significance that he uncovered was much the same. Maimonides is referring to the chain of being from the human up to the various supernal layers of reality. Shior Koma indicates for the highest possible human attainment, which is a structure called the active or agent intellect, uh, the lowest angelic ranking or material being, the place where basically the, the human and the uh, non-human, the angelic and above meet. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you know there are Midrashim also that tell us that Moses reached up as high as he could and the Shekinah came down as low as it could and there was still a sort of gap between them. This is uh, the same sort of type of ideas. So uh, that is, a, I hope, uh, even if it, it, not everything is uh, crystal clear, it gives you some idea of the type of questions that, 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 that uh, troubled and interested these Yemeni philosophers and the way they, they, they with, with great creativity and ingenuity, uh, got these, these troublesome texts to eventually uh, fit into the scheme which they had essentially bought into beforehand as the... Uh, the way that the, the cosmos is, is constructed and what the place of the human is in. Uh, so I think I, I will stop here and uh, open up, hopefully there'll be some questions or comments that, that can uh, maybe clarify uh, whatever they need clarification. Wow, thank you so much, Professor. That was extremely insightful. Um, okay, so we're gonna open up for uh, questions. Any more comments? Anyone wants to? Anyone has any questions? Let's see. Well, I think everyone just understood so clearly <laughs> all the content. Um. Okay, so if we uh, if we don't have any questions, um, I think we will end over there. Um, everyone, stay tuned for the uh, for the next uh, for the next installment of the series that we have with Professor Langerman. Um, and also, if you want to read more, uh, Professor Langerman did um, uh, share did write a uh, a chapter in our Pesach book that we recently published. Uh, so if you still haven't uh, gotten your your copy so make sure to get one and uh, check out that that chapter 
And um, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. And uh, Professor, uh, thank you so much. That was extremely insightful. And uh, we're very excited for the next well, installment. I hope, hope that you won't be disappointed. Thank you all for your attention. Oh, sure. And uh, see you in a few days. Thank okay. you. Bye. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye.